Hello, hello, and welcome to NLCC Sermon Recap Podcast. Uh, here in a moment, we're going to listen in to the message from this past Sunday morning that Ben gave on the uh, it's the first in a series on the letter to the, uh, the to the different churches that we see in Revelation, and this one specifically, we're we're going to be talking about the letter to the Ephesians. So look forward to listening in on that. First, I do want to remind you one last time that uh, we are, our fall programming is going strong already. So men, women, children, kids, uh, there's something for all of you students. Um, we have events on, on Wednesday nights, and we have other things happening throughout the week and on weekends. All of that information is available at northliberty.cc. Hit that Next Steps page, and you're going to have see all the information that you need to get your whole family plugged in to some extra Christian education that we are offering at NLCC. Let's go ahead and listen in on this message from Ben and the letter to the churches. When I was six years old, my family moved from Hobbs, New Mexico to Midland, Texas. It was about an hour and a half away. And uh, you know, I lost a lot of things. I'd gone to kindergarten, and so I lost some friends in school. I lost my friends at church. But, but one of the things that I lost that was probably the most significant was my cousin. I, I had a cousin who was a few months older than me uh, that we were really close with, really good friends, spent a lot of time playing together and hanging out together. And when I moved away, I, I lost that relationship. And I've really never had a cousin since then that, that a relationship like that could exist again. And so a few years later, after we'd moved away and that relationship had kind of really just kind of dissipated, my mom made a suggestion to me that I begin writing her letters. And I did. And I began uh, writing her letters, and then she would write letters back, and we became pen pals for a certain amount of time. I, I don't know how many letters there were. I don't know really even what we wrote or what we talked about and those interactions. I don't really remember much of it, but I remember writing the letters with excitement. I remember putting the envelope and putting the stamp on it. I remember uh, waiting in anticipation, always asking whether or not I got a letter back from her. And the excitement of, of a young child receiving something in the mail was a really big deal. I remember those moments. I remember the excitement of getting those things. When Christine and I were first dating, uh, we were uh, very early on in our relationship, and I was working for Christ in Youth, which is an organization that puts on conferences for high schoolers all over the country. And over the summer, I was working with them as an intern, and it allowed me the opportunity to travel all over the country helping with these conferences, but it also meant that I'd be gone a lot. Uh, in fact, uh, right uh, June 6th of that year, I left to go off for three weeks. I remember it uh, the last night with, with Christine before I left to, to go and hanging out with her and, and having dinner, celebrating my birthday, all that kind of stuff. And I remember that I saw her kind of slip something into my suitcase. Like she'd kind of even help me pack and do some stuff to get ready. And as it, I didn't really think much of it, but once we got to the first location and set up, I remembered that she kind of put something in this pocket and I pulled it out and I found 21 letters numbered day one, day two, day three. And Christina had gone through the trouble of writing me 21 letters. Like it was, it was incredible. There was scripture in them with encouragement. There was, there was kind words. There was prayers over me. There was, there was a celebration of me in certain ways in which she appreciated me. And this relationship again was still fairly new, but I can remember very clearly the way it made me feel 
to receive these letters, to have them with me and to be able to carry them. It became the thing, as, as that trip went longer and longer, it became something that I looked forward to each day, being able to start my day by opening up one of her letters and reading uh, the words that she'd communicated to me. That's something that she's worked really hard to invest into our children as well. I'm not real good at writing things down and, and, and sending notes. That's not something that I'm just very naturally good at. And, it, and I think it does come very natural to Christina. And she's trying to teach our kids the value of writing these letters, putting them in the mail, sending them off to people, and the, and the impact that that can have in people's lives. The Bible is full of letters stories of, of all sorts of things. Even within the Old Testament, you'll find these letters that are written back and forth from different people communicating significant things that were happening. And the New Testament, I think, uh, is full of letters. I mean, you have some incredible letters, like, like I think of the books uh, Timothy and, and Titus that Paul writes to these young men that we get to kind of read in on, right, that's been shared with us. And we can see the things that Paul wanted to communicate to these young men and to share with them and to challenge them and to teach them and to encourage them, to spur them on. I think of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, both written by Luke, but both written as letters to a man named Theophilus, a way in which Luke could historically categorize and, and collect all these pieces of information of who Jesus was and how the church began and sent them in a letter to a specific person. I think of Paul in the New Testament, and not just his writing to specific people, but his writings to churches, and how he would speak out. He, he would share these messages with churches. He, he knew them. He had a relationship with them. He, he'd had context with them. And so when, whenever he heard of them or he heard news of them or whatever else, then he would write to them in an incredibly personal way because these were people he knew. These were relationships he had. And he would send them these letters, these incredible letters that we have the opportunity to read, and to grow from, and to be challenged by. And then there's Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Incredible letters. In these two chapters, there's seven letters written to seven different churches, and John is the one who records it within his book, but if you read it, you'll find it's in red letters. These are letters from Jesus to these seven churches, and it's incredible as you read it. It's it's filled with some metaphorical language, like much of the book of Revelation. There's, some, there's lots of imagery involved, and that's kind of normal for the book. But beyond that, it's actually incredibly specific. It's incredibly practical. It's, it's very encouraging, and at the same time, it's very high on accountability. There are hard, strong calls for accountability. As Jesus speaks to these seven churches, there's something on the line, and he challenges now, I don't know what Jesus would say to us. I don't know what he would write in a letter to the American church or to the North Liberty Church of Christ. I'm not really sure. I have some ideas, but I don't know for sure. I do know that we as a church can look into this text, into these scriptures, into these letters, and we can find that they are deeply applicable to us, that there's lots of full meaning for us to gather from these things, and we'll find that there's incredible words written for our benefit. There's a larger context as well. These two chapters, uh, 2 and 3, they, they fall in kind of an interesting place. The, the book of Revelation starts in chapter 1 with just kind of an introduction type of a thing from John, and it's, 
It's strange. He's having these visions. It's all this stuff, but it's kind of introductory. It's just kind of setting the table for the rest of the book. And then chapters two and three take place where Jesus has these words, where he shares this communication with these seven different churches. And then in chapter four, everything goes wild. Everything just changes. Everything shifts, and it, and it just kind of flips out, if you will. And what we find throughout the rest of the book of Revelation is that there is a battle. There is a war that is taking place that, that is getting ready to rage in chapters 2 and 3 that Jesus is pre- preparing, that he's communicating with the churches on the front end, that there's a larger context here. Why are the churches being contacted? What are they being protected from? What's at risk? I think what we'll find as we go through this series is that Jesus is looking directly at these churches and he's saying that if, if you aren't healthy, if you aren't prepared, if you aren't strong, if you aren't focused, then you're not going to make it. There's some strong warnings to these churches that they'd better get their act together. Because in fact, if they don't, they could lose their light. They could lose their hope. They could lose even their salvation. So there's a lot of risk. And there's a lot being communicated. And so I want you to listen in on this. Read along with me in Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 1. We're going to see Jesus' first letter to the church in Ephesus. Jesus says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. This is Jesus introducing himself and saying, These are my words. These come from me to you. Verse 2, he says, I know your deeds. I know your deeds. I know your deeds, your hard work. And your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, uh, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you found them false. You've persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary, and yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things that you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, Uh, really interesting letter, kind of goes back and forth, lots of things that we can pull out of it, but let's start with this. Uh, When we talk about the church of Ephesus, this is the church that Paul writes a letter to uh, that we call Ephesians, all right? There's all sorts of connections here, and this church in Ephesus is kind of like the top-tier churches of that time. At this point, it's probably been around for about 40 years, that there's a lot of, uh, of history already there, and big names that have been a part of this church. I mean, this is a church that was started by Paul. He has deep roots there, but it's bigger than even just his name. I mean, they have a string 
of preachers that's very long. There's, there's people involved there uh, like a guy named Apollos and, and Timothy, which is a familiar name. We, there's a guy named Tychicus and, and even John the Apostle spent some time there. Uh, a famous couple named Aquila and Priscilla that when you read through scriptures, there's all these big names of big time leaders that are there in the very beginning of the Christian movement and they all have deep connections and ties to this church. This is a church that that any preacher would have wanted to be a part of. In fact, there's even one tradition that says that Mary, Jesus' mother, at one point lived in Ephesus and was a part of this congregation, part of this community. And when Jesus addresses this church, he says, I know your deeds. I want you to pause for just a moment. And I want you to consider how those words fall on your ears. Now, when I hear those words, when I hear, when I hear, I know your deeds, or I hear, I know what you did, all right, like I revert back to six-year-old Ben. That's like thinking through, oh no, what did my mom catch me in? Like, like, what does she know that I thought I got away with? What does she know that I thought was a secret? Like, those are the things, right? Like, I know your deeds. Like, this is a terrifying thing to hear. And yet for this church, for this congregation, they're not a bad child. They're not a disobedient child. In fact, they are a good child. They they were getting it right. And Jesus begins to praise them. He says, I know your deeds. And he praises them. He celebrates them. He says that that you're, uh, you're known for your hard work and your perseverance, that this church has a reputation of being hard workers, and they have a reputation of, of doing good work and that they do it consistently and that even when it gets hard, they persevere through it. That these are uh, the, the, the bones of a church. This is the structure of the church. These are the people who, who stick things out and they work through it and they make things work. These are, these are good folk, good people who do good things. Sounds familiar, right? Like it sounds like most American churches. It sounds like people who have good intentions and they like to do the right things. They like to be obedient. They like to get it right. Except that Jesus says, but I hold this against you. You've forsaken your first love. Remember the heights from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things that you did at first. I think of Luke chapter 10. Jody preached on this a couple weeks ago in the context of, of families, and he talked a lot about distractions and how, how sometimes we can be so distracted by what is second most important that we lose out on what is first most important, right? And Jody told us about Luke chapter 10. It's the story of Martha, right? Martha and Mary, and, and they had a brother named Lazarus. These are names that you would know within the Gospels if you, if you spent some time around them. And lots of different stories, but there's this one story where Jesus and his entourage of of who knows how many people at this moment, I mean, he has his disciples, but there could be more people with them. They show up at Mary and Martha's house. And, And Mary and Martha have this great responsibility to be hostess, to take care of all of the needs of all these people who are now in their home. And Martha is focused. She is attentive. She is doing good work. She is working very hard and she's doing everything she can to care for the needs of this group of people who are now in her home. And yet as she's going through this process, she begins looking around and realizes that Mary isn't doing it. Mary's Mary's opted out. She's somewhere else. And Martha kind of has this anger build in her 
over time and it builds and it builds and it builds until she finally just kind of explodes. And she doesn't sound like a grown woman here. She sounds like a 12-year-old arguing with her sister as she walks out in front of all of these people and says, Jesus, doesn't it matter anything to you that Mary's not helping me? <laughs> I totally throws her sister under the bus in front of everybody. Martha was doing good work. And she was sticking to it, and she was seeing it through. She was persevering in her work. She did really well, except that she had forgotten her first love. She had become distracted, as Jody put it a couple weeks ago, with what was second most important, and she'd missed out on what was first. And Jesus called her on it right there in front of everybody as well. It's a fascinating thing to see this, and, and, and I've been in church myself to experience this, and I've been around to watch other people experience this as well, that, that there's, people, there's people who are in the building all week long, doing different things, serving Jesus in incredible, important ways, and yet uh, they may be filling the halls of the church, but the Word of God isn't necessarily filling the chambers of their heart. I mean, have you ever been there? Have you ever been in that place where, you, where you're saying your prayers because you know you're supposed to be saying your prayers, but it feels like it's just bouncing off the ceiling right back at you? I mean, have you ever opened up God's Word to read it and it felt like you were like eating dust because there just wasn't anything valuable to it and it just felt dry and weary and difficult and it didn't give you any sustenance or life in it? Have you been in those places where, where you have gone to serve, but you didn't do it with a cheerful heart and you were negative and, and had a bad attitude the whole time? I mean, we can do the right things, but sometimes our heart is in the right place. Sometimes the emotion of it isn't there. Sometimes we found a way to do the good deeds without putting Jesus first, actually loving Him more than we care even about doing what is Right. Can you remember? Can you remember those days when you used to take long walks and have conversations with Jesus? Can you remember those times in your life where those relationships were, were life-giving and valuable? Where's it all gone? Every once in a while, I think a married couple goes through some ruts. They have these moments where communication gets difficult and they have a hard time working together and, 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 and nothing is easy, okay? When we get in those phases, uh, at least within my marriage, I can say that that when we kind of hit those ruts, that every conversation is complicated, right? That there's just this tension and, and, and this distance that kind of exists within the relationship to where even the simplest of conversations feels like pulling teeth, and it's complicated, and it's difficult, and, and that, that there's still a coexisting that things are still getting done and things are still being taken care of, but that relationship that used to be vibrant and used to breathe life into one another has suddenly become very dull and difficult. And I think we can say the same thing about our relationship with Jesus. I mean, it's no coincidence that Jesus calls the church His bride, that, that, that we are the bride of Christ, that collectively we function in a way where we are serving together in this holy, sacred marriage with Jesus, and yet at the same time, there's individual ways in which we serve, right? And, and, and it's not just even about the church collectively, but it's made up of these individual members, and that as we do our part, we also all have to each recognize this marriage we have to Jesus and this relationship we have with Him. 
It's not a surprise that Jesus would use this kind of marriage uh, illustration and language for us to be able to see. Couples fall out of love because oftentimes they stop doing the things that they did at first. I mean, think about it. And, and, and for me, and this may be really simplistic for a lot of people, but for me, this was, this was a big moment. I remember hearing this passage being taught when I was a kid. I remember hearing about the seven letters in Revelation. I remember hearing about the church that had lost their first love. And I thought that it had to do with like that, that kid in second grade that I had the crush on, the little girl, right, that I thought was just fantastic. And I was in love with her, but she never knew it, and she doesn't know it to this day, right? Because it was just that little crush thing that you had. She was my first love. And, and when I read this, I always kind of thought, well, we just have to have those butterflies again of, of, of what it would be to, to have that love for someone, right? That's not what Jesus is saying. That's not what he's talking about here. He's, he's, he's talking about a, a relationship where, yeah, you're still doing the dishes, you're still doing the chores, you're still taking care of all of the needs within the home, but you've forgotten about each other. You've fallen out of love with one another because you stopped doing the things that you did at first. I mean, how much time did you devote to your spouse when you were dating? Think about that. On a weekly basis, how much time would you have invested in the relationship with your spouse while you guys were dating early on? Some research says that, that a good, healthy, average couple will spend 15 hours together, just the two of them, in the course of a week. 15 hours. Now, a, a young college student or a young adult who's in the dating world would hear that and probably say, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Before an older married couple, someone uh, or a couple that, that's been together for a while, that number might, like, you might laugh at that. You might think that's kind of funny. You're thinking of all the kids and you're thinking of all the hobbies of work and you're thinking of all the reasons why you guys aren't able to spend time together. You've forgotten what you did at first. How easily we forget. I mean, the reality is within the context of a marriage, if you would start spending the same amount of time with your spouse now that you did back then, you'd probably find out that you're just as romantic now as you were back then. I mean, I've seen this in myself. I've seen that in my ability where I spend more time with my wife. I tend to become a better husband. Like, like I begin to be more attentive to her needs and I begin thinking of her before myself and I begin finding ways to care for her without her having to express a need to be cared for. It's an incredible, beautiful, good thing. When you do the things at first, you find that love that you found so many years ago. The advice of chapter 2 that Jesus is speaking to this church is pretty simple. He says, remember the height of from which you have fallen. Remember the height from which you have fallen and repent and do the things that you did at first. What were you doing as a new believer? Like when you first experienced Jesus and you first experienced the hope that he gave you and you first experienced the taste of salvation and the way in which he was your savior, when you first experienced those things, what did you do? What were the things that you would do? I mean, you would, you would talk to Jesus, not because you felt like you had to, because you were trying to discipline yourself to be a better Christian, but because you couldn't wait to. You wanted to talk to him. You wanted to share with him your life. You wanted to sit and listen and, and let him speak to your heart. Remember those days. Remember the height from which you've fallen. 
I mean, do you remember back when you would read the Bible because you wanted it to feed you? Not because you just had to go through the motions of the day. Not because you needed to check it off of some sort of a reading plan. But that you went to Scripture because you needed it. You were living off of it. Do you remember those days? Do you remember the height from which you've fallen? Can you remember? Can you remember when you used to to crave Christian community? And you used to crave being around other people to strengthen one another. And you couldn't get enough information of, of Scripture, but you also couldn't wait to hear other people's stories and be able to pray with them or to care for them or to grow yourself because of the example that they set. Can you remember? Do you remember the height from which you've fallen? Repent and do the things that you did at first. Church, I hope you're hearing this. I hope you're hearing that this was written to a church in Ephesus by Jesus a long, long time ago. But it's so very relevant for our church. We have a lot of very good people who do good things. You're probably one of them. But could Jesus look you in the eye and say that you've forgotten your first love? Could he say to you that you've forgotten why you do all of the good things? That you've found a way to just kind of coexist with Jesus, not actually be in love with him? And can you recognize that something's on the line here? That something can actually be lost if you don't get this right? I mean, goodness, Jesus is saying this to this church because there's a dragon and a beast and a harlot that's about to be coming out onto the scene in the rest of this book. Like there's a battle that's getting ready to rage. There is conflict that's coming. There's difficulty coming. And if we get caught with a lackluster love, how easily we will be pulled away from our groom. Do you understand what's on the line? We can't be walking through life without this zealous love for Jesus. For this church, specifically for this church, I think that we can confidently say that it's time for us to repent or we'll lose our lampstand. That's specifically what Jesus says to the church in Ephesus. And I know that's kind of weird imagery for us and you're kind of imagining which lamp in the church Jesus might take. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? But this is a warning. This is Jesus speaking to the church in Ephesus, and he says, like basically what he's saying here is, I'm present. I'm with you. I'm a part of your gathering. I'm in your presence, and I know what's taking place. And if you guys can't fall back in love with me, then I'm going to remove your light. Basically, he says, I'm going to basically make you no longer a church. That the thing that separates you from the rest of the world, remember Jesus says that they'll know that you're his followers by your love. Not just our love for one another, but even our love for him. That love is our motivation and and it challenges us and it moves us in all the different areas that we go. And Jesus says, that's what you'll be known by is your love. And if you don't have love, then I'm going to remove your lamps and I'm going to remove your light. I'm going to remove your opportunity to be my examples within the community and within the world that you live in. That's what's on the line here, that we will cease to be a church. And practically speaking, that's reality. If we don't have love, then we aren't really a church. Do you understand what's on the line? Repent, or we'll lose our lampstand. However, Jesus also makes a really cool promise. 
And he says, to him who overcomes, he'll get to eat from the tree of life. To him who overcomes. To the person who is able to be in love with Jesus. For the person who is able to move aside all of the temptations of this world, including good things, including the second most important things, right? Including the distractions that are really, really good, but just not important. To the person who's able to overcome those temptations and remain focused on Jesus and in love with him and who he is, to that person, Jesus calls him an overcomer. And he says that they have access to true life. Now, now we need to hear this. This word overcomer doesn't mean that you overcome necessarily the things in this world. It doesn't mean that if you have enough love for Jesus that you'll be able to overthrow all the different things that are trying to work against Jesus. That's not the promise at all. In fact, the promise is, is that when you die, you'll get the reward. That's what Jesus calls an overcomer. That's the promise. That's the hope that we would have access to this incredible symbolic source of eternal life. Church, I know your good deeds. I know your hard work. I know your perseverance. I know you're good people who do good things. But do you love Jesus? Have you forgotten your first love? Thanks again for tuning in to the Sermon Recap Podcast. I hope that this message was beneficial to you. If you have any questions about what we talked about, or if you want to find out a little bit more, connect with a pastor, have a conversation, or maybe get some prayer, please go to our website, northliberty.cc, and hit that Connect With Us button. A pastor will be able to reach out to you and uh, talk with you, pray with you, whatever you may be needing. So please use that. Uh, We would love to have a conversation with you about what you just heard in that message. Thank you again for tuning in, and we look forward to being back on another Sermon Recap podcast next week.